put my daughter in the car. Uh, I think I took a swig on the Jaeger and leaned out the car door and totally threw up. Okay. Then I put the stuff away. I start backing up and some good Samaritan guy, I call him good Samaritan. Some person, some man stops me in the car, like stands behind the car. Sir, 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 sir. You're drunk. You shouldn't be driving. Your, your daughter's in the car. Get out of the car. You, you shouldn't be driving. All right. Welcome to the Recovery Edgecast. My name is Alfredo and I'm an alcoholic. Today, our guest is Alex. And Alex, I met at the Trudgers, Happy Trudgers group in Denver. Um, I think you've been going for a few years now. Is that right? Yes, I came in on um, July, or sorry, June, I want to say 25th or 26th of 2018, although I had been to one meeting prior to that in, I want to say, 2014. Nice. Yeah, um, I, I believe I was there. You've had some memorable shares over the years and stuff, and um, thought it'd be great to have you on. Also, I miss you, man. I haven't seen you since, like, I don't know, last year before COVID or something. Absolutely. I, my, you know, not as strong, my fact of being not as strong in my program right now is something I feel guilt about. So I'll probably share a little bit about that in this interview. Yeah. Um, but I do plan on getting back into my groove because now I'm, I actually got my first COVID shot the other day. So nice. my excuses are wearing thin. They were always thin, but <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, why don't you get us started with uh, your sober date and home group? My sober date is June 23rd of 2018 at 2 p.m. My home group is Happy Trudgers, which is in downtown Denver, Colorado. I say that my uh, sober date is 2 p.m. because I'll tell you, uh, as I get into the what happened, um, that was the time that I blew zeros and was released from, uh, what's it called? It's not jail, but it's, uh, you know what I'm talking about, Fredo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, uh, it's like a drug recovery center. It's mm, like kind of like jail. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, yeah, it was 2 p.m. when I blew zeros after yeah. a DUI. Uh, I've been there, man. So June 23rd, 2018, that's three years, right? Yes, I'll have three years in June, uh, knock on wood, day by day. Well, congratulations on having almost three years sober as of today. Probably been a heck of a journey, I bet. It has. So tell us how the year 2020 went for you. Sure. I feel guilt uh, also. You can Guilt might be a theme with me, uh, that I actually have to report that it was very good. Because it wasn't so good for like my brother and other people I know. Mm-hmm. I was able to keep my job. I was able mm-hmm. to um, work from home, uh, spend more time with family. Um, I think I got some centeredness in um, some of my interests as well as uh, just what family has meant to me. And uh, I've just become a better person. I don't know if it owes to the fact of COVID or if it's just that. This is yet another another year in sobriety. Yeah. So uh, right. it's been good, man. 
All right. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I think you're warmed up. What do you think? I think I'm warmed up. Well, why don't you uh, go ahead and give us the rundown on what it was like, what happened, and what it's like today. I Sure. So I'm the second of five kids. My mother was... Um, Okay, so my on my mother's side, my grandmother died when I was in fifth grade of an apparent accidental drug overdose. She was found dead with a um, burrito on her lap, like on a plate, watching TV. Uh, also on my mother's side, my grandfather was an alcoholic. He died of probably just issues related to alcoholism. Uh, in, uh, I don't know, a few years after my grandmother. So then my mother, um, was a drug addict, although she was also a good mom, right? We had everything growing up in suburbia in Albuquerque, New Mexico. My father was a dentist and we had everything. Uh, it was good. It was a good life, but she kind of fell into a pattern of drug and some alcohol use, um, starting probably when I was like in uh, junior, senior year of high school. Um, and then I go off to college and she kind of dips even further into it. And I'm the second oldest. So mind you, there are three kids at home. And my mom's is kind of uh, taking prescription drugs that she ordered off of shady ass things on the internet. And I would come home from college, first year of college, and she would be falling into her spaghetti, you know, falling asleep at the dinner table, that kind of thing. Wow. Um, Yeah. So she dies when I'm a sophomore in college. And that kind of leaves my family with this huge hole in the middle of it. She might have been a little bipolar or a lot. I don't know on the spectrum of bipolarity. She was somewhere on there. So she was definitely the driving force of our family. Really great woman. um, But really, uh, (laughs) man, she also was pretty crazy. Mm. And um, uh, as far as people interacting with her. Well, that leaves this whole... Um, my brother, Ben, uh, also ended up dying from alcoholism. He was the second youngest in 2016. However, as for me and my drinking story, I just, that's all kind of background. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in, in college, I, I don't think I was a, any more of a crazy drinker than anyone else. Uh, I wasn't the, the guy necessarily. I think that my overall trajectory of um, getting to the point of having a major problem with alcohol was more linear. So I don't know if I found some people who identify with that, Mm -hmm. um, but it's certainly not everyone in the program. Throughout the decade of my 20s, I simply drank more and more and more and more. And there might have been little spikes moments where it's like that Memorial Day weekend, I went way overboard. And then I opened up a new door into drinking more. Um, But, you know, I've heard it said by Brian and our group, and maybe others that alcoholism can be like a light switch. And where 
once it's turned on, it's on and it can never be turned off. And I think that that analogy is apt for me because like a light switch, I'm touching one now, like you can push it up a little bit and it'll go back to its resting position. But at a certain point, it reaches that tipping point and it flips on. And so I think that ultimately, you know, I flipped on probably 2014 some on. And I was like, uh, uh, I, I think I was around 30 years old. Then I realized, man, I'm, I'm kind of, I've got a drinking problem. I can't stop. I lived in Denver at the time because my uh, job, I had gotten a job here, a lawyer job. And uh, when I say I can't stop, Fredo, I mean like I, I would, I was a binge drinker. So I would pick up a drink on say a, a Thursday night or a Friday night and just start going mm. and then i'd wake up and it at a certain point when this light switch was flipping on in my analogy i started enjoying drinking when i was hung over in the morning that was the best cure and so then because i started drinking in the morning that day started getting effed up too mm. and that would happen. Usually I could only last like a day and a half and I would swear it off every time. Right. Every time in the middle of the night, I would have this, mo I would wake up like, what the fuck time is it? And I'm completely disillusioned, complete. I have no idea what, what the hell have I done? I did it again. Mm -hmm. Sometimes in my own urine. And I'm like, God, man, why have you done this again? I'm, I just need to stop. However, three days later, usually it was around three days. And my wife actually, she's a special ed teacher. So it's her part of her job to identify patterns in people mm -hmm. so that she can help identify students and notice their patterns and everything, give them supports. She knew it was three days too. Mm -hmm. She told me after the fact. So yeah, man, I would just, and to, because I would swear it off, it's been pointed out to me that I have decided to quit drinking in my lifetime hundreds of times, right? And I've relapsed hundreds of times because really, arguably, if a person is at a point where they know they have a drinking problem and they swear it off, yet they go back to it, then they just relapsed. Um, so that's a little speech there for you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what uh what else yeah man i would just i was just so freaking disillusioned as far as what i would do i just it was any number of things i'd go to gabf i would go and buy and that would be a binge of course um i would go and buy alcohol i'd be hiding alcohol bottles all around my house thinking i was in the, in my stupid drunken stupor thinking i was being smart by hiding them this place or the other well, I had, I would hide them from myself and mm -hmm. then my wife would find these things in places that clearly somebody tried to hide it there behind the, you know, craft Mac and cheese or something, 
in the pantry and it's a you know it's a pint bottle of disgusting low-end vodka fredo a, a story that p- makes people laugh is that i would uh hide pint uh, i would always get this uh, like either svedka or some other brand of vodka the plastic bottle so that i could hide it in my underwear when i'm watching tv with my wife or like uh hanging out with my wife doing mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. this way oh i gotta go to the bathroom mm. i just had it on me and i could just go to the bathroom chug some and be back in business um as far as going and sitting down everything's normal and i didn't have to hide it in our little spa spare uh i say spare our little bathroom you know it's just there's no real good hiding place in there um that is a famous I, share from you in the treaders yay yeah, there's a lot of jokes that go with that every time you share it you know i love that yeah it's awesome uh, um uh, i would drive drunk all the time my behavior you know you've seen in this share, like I've had some, I have guilt issues, Catholic kid. Well, I was never really a liar before all this, before my light switch got turned on. I was never, I, I think that I was probably objectively at least an average person as far as integrity goes, but man, drinking made a liar of me. I, and it made a drunk driver of me. Um, I would go and drink it, but I would excuse myself sometimes from work to go drink, you know, and then get as drunk as possible that I still could like manage to be a normal ish driver. I thought then stop the liquor store on the way home and get um, what would look to somebody like, which I thought I was, you know, which would look to my wife like, oh, he just has like a six pack of beer. And then I would buy some vodka and just chug it. And I would buy other small bottles of vodka that I would have concealed such that I could hide them around the house in addition to the beer. So I guess what I'm saying is I drink, then I drive, and then, you know, I drive to the liquor store, pick up, oh, it's an innocent six pack, drink uh, some vodka then, go home and drink, just sipping a beer as I'm just hiding all all the rest of the drinking that I'm doing. Um, another secret that I thought was so brilliant was if you buy a six pack of beer or 12 pack or whatever, Buy two of them, hide one of them. That way, when you go on your binge late at night, if you're able to access that second one, you could just put the bottles back so that when the next morning, oh, everything's normal. Forget that I was like slurred speech, glassy eyes, all this other stuff. And I mentioned drunk driving. Well, when I got my DUI, which I'll get to, I... um didn't blow zeros until 2 p.m. the next day. 
Mm. And that was a big like wake up call. Like I've drove drunk a lot more times than I thought I did. If it's taking me till 2 PM to blow zeros. And this wasn't an especially crazy binge that I got my DUI on as far as the amount of that I drank. Um, then I must've drove drunk to work in the morning many, many times without really realizing I was still drunk. Uh, another thing that I did was to really, uh, that I'm one time, a friend of mine, my, basically I really bitched out my wife's friend one time when I was drunk for some, some in thing that I thought she needed bitching out for uh, about, I mean, that's mm-hmm. so great. Awesome. Good job, Alex. I also was very mean and rude to my family and my father. We were on vacation with my dad and his wife uh, down in Mexico one time long about 2017 and my dad just was like, what the hell are you doing, dude? Why are you treating everyone like this? Alex. I, yes. Oh, sorry to interrupt. Um, when you were bitching out your wife's friend, what made that so memorable? Were there consequences to this? Was it yeah, just shame? Shame. This is my wife's longtime friend from college. It was a matter about which I... Uh, had no business putting my nose in. Mm-hmm. In my right mind, it is the opposite of what I would do in my sober mind. MYOB, as my mother would say, mind your own business. Mm. This was not something, and I, it was absolutely horrifying because I wasn't drunk enough that I forgot it. Mm-hmm. I know, I know a lot of what I said, mm. uh, and it was just horrible. So. Gotcha. And it's not the person, it's shame because I'm so not the person I want to be when I'm drinking. It really turns me into Mr. Hyde. Mm. It didn't always, but once my switch was turned on and I just, so then, yeah, I mean, that also on that topic leads me into what happened and specific to my DUI, I still have shame about it. And maybe that's why I, I don't share a lot about it, but maybe I just need to, I'm, I'm gumming up on three years and maybe I need to have a little bit more self-actualization about like, okay, man, that's what happened. But I still, yeah. Anyway, what happened was, Fredo, I described to you the pattern of, I excuse myself from work, start getting drunk at downtown bars at which I knew the bartender's names and then start going home. Okay, I did that one time. And I think I had a little bit more than I usually do on that pattern, which also itself is a pattern because, again, linearly, I would drink more and more and more and more throughout mm-hmm. my 20s, culminating to when I was 34 mm-hmm. in 2018, some odd. Um, yeah, and then I go home. I bring McDonald's home. I don't eat a lot of McDonald's in my sober life. I can tell you that mm-hmm. I bring that home. I don't also don't remember Fredo, which McDonald's location I went to. 
And then um, I'm pretending to be sober. And unfortunately, my wife was kind of like along for this ride and she didn't call me out and leave me. And I thought I could prove to her almost like, hey, I'm not drunk or whatever. It might have been an unspoken thing, but it was like, yeah, I'll drive us. You want to go to the gym? Yeah, I'll drive us over there. Oh, yeah, they have a pool there. So I take my two-year-old daughter to the pool while my wife goes to the gym. I slide down the slide. We're playing in a little shallow play area. Slide down the slide like it's a tiny little slide. Fall over, hit my head. The lifeguard is like, sir, are you okay? You know, we have a protocol where, you know, if someone hits their head, we have to ask them if they're okay. And I said, I'm a lifeguard. I was a lifeguard when I was, and I know what I'm doing and blah. (laughs) Come on, Mm. asshole. That was my response. So then I get mad and kind of in my heart and my wife, my daughter doesn't want to be there because it's almost like overwhelming. She's two. She's been there for 10 minutes. Doesn't want to be there anymore. So I'm thinking, okay, Jen is on the, this is my wife, is on the uh, treadmill or elliptical. I can put Cecilia in the car. We can go to the liquor store and be back in time for Jen to be off the uh, equipment. So that's what I do at the liquor store. They kind of, uh, I think that the attendant kind of knew I was drunk as I have this two-year-old in tow and we have like wet hair and i'm literally wearing a swimsuit that's probably like mostly wet mm. as i'm buying two pints of jaeger or they, they're not pints they're like um yeah i think they're pints i don't know what they are you know fucking jaeger i walk out of there because i don't want the paper bags that's more evidence fredo mm-hmm. i uh just take them in hand i put them in the car put my daughter in the car uh i think i took a swig on the jaeger and leaned out the car door and totally threw up okay then i put the stuff away i start backing up and some good samaritan guy i call him good samaritan some person some man stops me in the car like stands behind the car sir 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 you're drunk. You shouldn't be driving. Your, your daughter's in the car. Get out of the car. You, you shouldn't be driving. And I'm like, fuck you, man. Get out of the way. Mm. And I like, I go around the corner like an asshole. Beep, 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 honking the horn. And um, by the way, he said when he was stopping me, I'm on the phone with 911. I was like, fuck you, man. I'm out of here. So I go and we pick up Jen at the um, pool and we get home. He had reported my uh, plate number to the 911 operator. And by the time we got home from the gym, there were like two cruisers in my driveway. Mm. I had only lived in this suburb for a year. So I'm sure that looked great to the neighbors. And they totally arrested me right in front of my house. And uh, uh, spent the night in re is it detox? I spent mm-hmm. the night in detox. I was charged with child abuse and um, DUI. Uh, several hours thereafter, 
the results of my blood work came back because you get the choice, I guess, of blowing in the field or you can get, they can take you to jail and they can draw your blood. And I said, I want blood. I'm going to pass this test. It was mm-hmm. probably my fucking, mm-hmm. my body can process alcohol. <laughs> I knew it. And I, by the way, I bitched out the tra- the cop on the way to the detail, uh, to the jail oh, first. Great idea. And then I went, oh yeah, I'm a lawyer. I can't believe you're gonna blah blah blah. You know, in front of my neighbors, in front of my neighbors. Don't you oh know who my I am? God. Yeah, that's who I was. Yeah, don't you know who I am? Anyway, so you can tell I'm really focused on this story because I have mm-hmm. not forgiven myself. Mm. Um, so yeah, man, I got to, I. Then I got lucky that ultimately I was able to take a. Pl- oh, I okay. So my blood alcohol was two two seven point two seven. And I remember all of it. And I was thinking, I didn't really know what would be a high blood alcohol. But when I got a lawyer, ultimately, he was like, two seven, holy shit, dude, you were drunk. Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, I wasn't. I wasn't that drunk. But he's like, some people like that don't drink would be falling over at 0.08. Like they couldn't even stand up. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, oh, shit. I knew I had a high tolerance. So, okay. Um yeah, man. So two seven. Okay, so a few days later, and you said you remember my first day. I show up to Trudgers just crying, just just totally. And I said, yeah, "Guys, I've reached bottom. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to quit drinking for my family." And I, uh, another member of our group, Shane, had something that said something that I remember, which is. Well, ultimately, you don't quit drinking for anyone else. You have to have your recovery. And from that, all other things flow. Like, it's almost like the recovery is the bedrock. And on top of that, you have family and your, your relationship with yourself and everything else that makes a person. Um, you're not giving it up for anyone else, but kind of for yourself first. Mm-hmm. Um, he Shane also said, um, "Oh, it was something else that I just escapes me." Um, yeah, and I just uh, was in dire straits at that time. Mm. I think that a a life has to be wiped away, and we have to just. And that's what I think the twelve steps are about: is kind of like coming to terms with what was all of that, what was that whole thing so that you can breathe in a big breath of air. And as you breathe it out, realize that it's all gone now and now is now. And all of that doesn't need to, you don't need to carry that baggage with you. Clearly I'm still carrying some of it. So I should probably do my 12 steps again. Hmm. Um, But um, that's what it meant for me. Yeah. So I got a, I, didn't fully do 90 and 90. I pro- maybe I did do 90 and 90, but they weren't um, all. Um, I would miss some days. Uh, and in addition, I was also doing uh, DUI therapy classes right away, trying to proactively do what the state was going to make me do also. So I definitely did 90 and 90 if you unfold those non AA meetings, which a purist would not allow. Mm-hmm. Shane being one of them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, but uh, I actually got a lot out of the DUI group therapy meetings 
I have a good recommendation for someone if anybody wants to know. I know a good one downtown. And uh, my recovery, I also got Mike R as my sponsor. Mm -hmm. Great guy. Uh, I listened to the podcast, his episode last night. Uh, He has a a story to tell. uh, So I recommend that episode. And he, in turn, his sponsor is Lionel, another podcast episode. Um, And so I feel like I have a good support group. I talk to Mike uh, probably once a month, maybe once every other month on the phone. I should call him more often. And uh, I don't know, prompt me here. What else, what else should I talk about? So as you were gaining momentum in your drinking career, were there any early warning signs? Like, did people start confronting you, like especially your wife, um, about the amount you were drinking? Were there any thoughts early on, like, maybe this isn't normal? Yes. Um, I was in law school around 2009 to 2012. And that's uh, around that time is when I would say that I really started drinking too much. And she, my wife would tell me, yeah, man, or yeah, you need to, what are you doing? Because she would find me drinking sometimes when like on an afternoon she come home early and I wasn't expecting her and for some reason I have a fucking bottle of red wine open or whatever mm-hmm. so yeah she would start confronting me mm. uh, around that time and that just continued yeah and I knew as well Fredo especially in moments when I was so hung over in the middle of the night when that disillusionment is just like God, what the fuck have I done I'm going to have to deal with this at some point later in my life. That's what I would say to myself. Mm-hmm. At some point later, I'm going to have to deal with this. <laughs> Tomorrow. <laughs> Tomorrow. Tomorrow never came yeah. for me. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. eventually it did, but there were a lot of tomorrows. Yeah, actually, and tomorrow never came for my brother, Ben. Mm-hmm. He died of alcoholism. Um, you know, when we cleaned out his closet in 2016, he, it was just bottles, man. That's all it was. I had given him my record. I don't know why I bring this up, but I had given him, he sold everything of value to him. Hmm. And so that's the thing that I was trying to remember that Shane said. I said, I've absolutely hit rock bottom. And then of course, you can always find the basement of rock bottom. Hmm. So, you know, <laughs> Ben's dead. And uh, I'm not. I had a great bottom, you know, day by day. I'll keep that as my bottom mm-hmm. compared to his. When your mother passed away, how, what was the cause? The coroner never really said, but she had a bunch of pills mm-hmm. all over. Mm-hmm. She also, and so it was unintentional. And she was found in the laundry room doing laundry. And they actually had plans for the day. They were going to go look at some property or something. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I was uh, studying abroad in Spain, and I flew home for that funeral. And actually, it was Ben. Ben, my brother, was homesick from school that day. And it was he who found her in the laundry room, called my dad. 
and um, uh, they, my dad rushed home, and only then did they call the ambulance. Ben always carried that with him, that guilt. This oh. disease has really hit you hard, close. It's really, it's really hit you home. Yeah, it has. I was, I was real sad after Ben died in 2016 on Memorial Day weekend. I, um, and so, like I said, my sobriety date is June of 2018. So in those two years, I would often go to bars. And then after a few drinks, man, I'd be sitting alone in the corner of the bar, sobbing, drinking alone, listening to music and like fucking crying. Mm. Like, what's that weird guy over there <laughs> crying? Yeah. But that's what I did for like two years. So you get to uh, AA. Yeah. yeah. After you hit a bottom in trouble yes. with the law. How did your first year go? And how did, how did you get that first year? Okay, it was really, really good. That I got my pink cloud uh, happened pretty quickly um, because I started seeing colors more vividly after a few weeks of not drinking. I started, um, uh, even though I was facing consequences like losing my law license potentially, um, maybe some jail time, uh, child abuse charges. I had, I had all kinds of consequences coming at me yet. I was happy to take them all because I was, my pink cloud was just that strong. And, uh, I got my first year, just, I journaled and I actually have my journal here. I was going to use it as a cheat sheet. If I (laughs) figure out stuff to talk about, um, I journaled, I went to a lot of meetings. Um, I kept myself very busy. I did the 12 steps with my sponsor, which was very healthy. Um, I think I was very like self-evaluated at that time, probably more so than I am in this moment as I sit here and do this episode. I need to get back in my space of sharing at meetings. I noticed that I'm not as strong in meetings or in my vulnerability uh, as I was then my ego has kind of ballooned back up a little bit since not going to meetings. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, Fredo for me, that, that balloon analogy is another one. It's like I had been lying and hiding and fearing so much. So for so long that when it all got blown out into the open that Alex, you know, the golden child lawyer boy has, child abuse charges and a DUI it was like okay now everybody knows that I'm an alcoholic and which for those of you that didn't already know and uh, it was like a balloon deflating I didn't have to hide it anymore it's fantastic in that way mm. I was able to have real conversations with people once once again and nobody really turned their back on me like I expected that they would. They were like, cool, man. He's being real. He's looking me at the, in the eye when he talks to me and he's telling me God's honest truth about his life. So that was, it was very refreshing. And yeah, I was, I was getting up at like 5 a.m. every day. I was and going to bed early and journaling. And uh, it was that kind of vibe. Lots of coffee. 
Are you open to sharing one of your entries of your journal? Sure. <laughs> yeah, give us something out of that first year. All right. Let's find a good one. I'm going to find one that I probably wrote uh, after a um, meeting at Trudgers. It's I started every journal entry with, I'm grateful for. Gratitude journals. Yeah. Um, okay. I, I took notes of what was being said at meetings. I say July 16th of 2018. So this is like uh, three weeks after I got, uh, got into the program. Grateful to be sitting here in my AA meeting. Folks are talking about taking time at step one of the program, not rushing it. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. I can't even remember all the times I've drunkenly interacted with neighbors. How many times and how have I made a mess of myself and didn't even know it? Part of the fact of my unmanageable life. And then I start writing quotes that I like. Um, if you think you can drink successfully, you're going to try it. You have to know we can't. We have to know we can't drink. The whiskey and the milk story. Read, read that. I guess I was making a note of my to myself. Uh, writing a letter to a dead relative, maybe Ben. Is that a good idea? Um, how it was, what happened, what it's like now. Living amends, good deeds to random folks. I think so. At this point, early in my program. This all to to a seasoned AA veteran seems like, you know, basic stuff. This is me in the moment really absorbing some of that basic stuff. Exactly, I think that step yeah. one meetings, are, yeah, step one meetings are really good for those people just coming in the door. Mm -hmm. um, so. I love it. It reads kind of like you're trying to soak in as much as possible, you know. <laughs> it's yeah. It's pretty funny. It's It's awesome. Um, but it's like, man, I just need as much recovery as I can trying to just take it all in, in, in one hour, which is kind of impossible, but it's a great read. Yep. Um, so then you get your first year and you're just, you keep going, uh, your second year we're in 2019 and then we hit 2020. How did your recovery uh, you know, everything that you gained from that first year help you through the COVID situation with meetings being shut down and all that stuff. What did that look like for you? Um, as I, okay, so I stopped really going to meetings when COVID came. And I think I went to like two Zoom meetings total. Um, shows you how many meetings I've been to in the last year and a half. Two. Uh, my um i think that early in the pandemic i had a strong base of aa wisdom that i i was doing fine i would say that over time it has faded like just now as i read that uh journal entry to you whiskey in the milk story I kind of don't remember that. I'm sure I knew what that was. You can, yeah, like I, I haven't read the big book lately. And so 
thankfully, I haven't picked up a drink, but I do think that AA wisdom doesn't, you know, you can't take it for granted. You kind of have to stay strong in your program or it will fade. Mm -hmm. And I am an example of that. Mm. Um, So maybe when I go back to meetings, I should bring my little journal and start writing it take my belt self back to square one a little bit and reread the big book again. Yeah. I think we all benefit from that mindset. You know, like I come in, I'm a newcomer again today. Let's do this back to basics. Pretty much back to basics. There yeah. you go. So what's it like today with your family and, um, your career? What's the difference? I'm, I've been able to have gratitude. One thing I've noticed about uh, when I when I first got sober, Fredo, I thought that alcohol only affected me when I was drinking. But now I realize that alcohol for me was it was the thing, and my sober and my drunk life were all built around it. Hmm. I would use alcohol or the thought of it as the carrot in my daily life. If I were to do a yard project or a work project or something with my family, it was like, just wait until you sit down on that bar stool, man. That's going to be the reward. Mm-hmm. Such that it just drove everything for me. And a, and a person that lives like that can't really be grateful for those moments of work and family and just living. Because the real life is happening when you take that first sip. That's when life really begins. What's to be grateful for outside of that? So you're never in the moment. Never in the moment. Never. I was never in the moment. I didn't even know what that meant. Mm -hmm. People that like, you know, hearing people like talk about yoga types or, or whatever, like talking about groundedness. I had no idea what that meant, except to know that I'm not fucking grounded. I'd rather be like partying. Um, yeah. So, yeah, man. I don't even know what time it was half the time, by the way. One time my wife woke me up and she's like, it's six o'clock. Are you going to get up now? I didn't know if it was six o'clock PM or AM. Mm, classic. Yeah, so let, not living in the moment. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Anyway. So now I think that the thing that, uh, the word that I'd use is gratitude. Even if things go wrong in life, I'm glad that I'm alive. (laughs) I'm happy that I'm alive. Um, Trying to take myself a little less seriously. Uh, I mentioned at the beginning of the interview that I'm a perfectionist. And people think of that as like cool, good thing for professionals, but actually it creates a certain paralysis. Mm. You don't want to start projects because you're worried that they won't be exactly right. And sometimes you don't even know what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think just realizing that life's kind of short. Um, what I, I don't know what's going to happen five minutes from now. And I don't know, but I can be grateful for this moment now. Mm. Um, and that's my whole life, man. Like as a, as far as what's really happening, I'm taking up running again in my sobriety. I used to run marathons. I ran two. Um, so now I'm uh, registered for Colfax in October. I have a bike race in September. 
I've been doing some backpacking. Um, I have the sort of bravery to go and do things alone because um, I'm comfortable with myself. So last summer I did a three night backpacking trip just by myself. Um, I certainly would have had that bravery um, back when I was drinking. Mm-hmm. And I would have just been like, knowing me, if I had like set that up, I probably would have set it up to like, oh yeah, I'm backpacking, wink, wink. I'm actually in some motel fucking drinking, you know? <laughs> so, um, yeah, that reminds me of a time I drove clear across a state trunk. I, w- I had a work business trip out in Grand Junction and uh, just got fucked up. And uh, after I did the deposition, and spent the night, woke up, and just actually drank some the next day, and then drove back. I mean, that's a four-hour drive. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. If you could give yourself a piece of advice in that first year, what would that be? Listen to your sponsor. Go to lots of meetings. If you, uh, my experience is that if you go to meetings, the more you go to the more you like them. So if, if I had like let like five or seven days pass, or in this case, almost a year and a half, it's almost like the first one feels like going, the first one going back for me feels like, ah, man, I have to sit here for an hour. But then if you go to a few in a, in, if you start going to more and more, you start to crave them. So that's why I think that, you know, there are people who really just love going to meetings. And I was kind of one of them. And I can get back to that place, too, if I just go to more and more. Just kind of turn off your brain, I guess, is what I'm saying, and just go to the damn meeting. (laughs) And I'm giving myself this advice right now, too. All right. Now your final task is to summarize your story in one or two sentences. I hid it in my underwear. Now I'm grateful I just have underwear. Perfect. <laughs> uh, so from lying to gratitude. Yes. <laughs> Perfect. Alex, thanks for uh, sharing your story with us. I really appreciate it. All right. And I'm um, looking forward to seeing you back at some meetings sometime, man. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Tell people I said hi. You got it. Thanks again, Alex, for sharing your story with us. And thank you, listeners, for checking out the Recovery Edgecast. Remember, you can listen to more of our episodes at recoveryedgecast.com. Find us on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, wherever you like to check out your podcasts. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.